beginning it was all jimmy shortly after there was mike and the show has really expanded from there to have a number of subplots many of the secondary characters are now involved in plot lines that aren't directly related to either of them even whereas before everything kind of revolved around those two so there's so much else going on that mike wasn't even in the final episode and i didn't even realize until a decent while later yeah, it's pretty neat. There's so much going on that such a major character missing was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Some characters that were hardly known, barely even tertiary in the beginning, have become my favorites, like Howard and Nacho. They're becoming very central to their own storylines. Yeah, just to name a few, Gus and Hector have a plot. Nacho and Hector have a plot. Howard and Chuck have a plot. Kim has a subplot of her own. And several of these characters also interact with each other in other ways. Like, these plot lines kind of cross over each other. It's really interesting. The show is really growing. And that's great because... Pretty much every plot line is excellent. Meta elements. The title of episode 9, Fall, is quite fitting, especially when you combine it with the title for episode 8, which was Slip. Slip and Fall. And that, of course, had great significance for a lot of the major characters from Hector, Nacho, Kim, HHM. You know, it's all about the cost of how they're pushing themselves in these ways. Aren't Slip and Fall the names of the two killer twins? (laughs) (laughs) And then episode 10 is titled Lantern. And we knew this ahead of time. And so it really was this Chekhov's gun in my mind from when Mike first took the photographs of that lantern that the house was going to burn down i really thought it was going to happen we saw the episode titles like something is going to happen here and it did but we see the lantern at the beginning of this episode in the teaser with young chuck and then at the end of the episode yeah i totally agree with you and we saw that photo of the lantern sitting on the newspaper it was like ooh, that does look like dangerous and of course it was presented that way in court as look how dangerous this is but i would have you know i think like a lot of people probably expected maybe some sort of accident not what happened but we'll get into that Thanks to announcer Jason for the voiceover work and to Thomas Numpersong for the intro music. Great job, guys. Narrative. In fall, the plotline was really well done, but painful, I'd say. This isn't Jimmy the clever lawyer. This is slipping Jimmy. And it's really hard not to feel bad for Irene. I mean, he was really just destroying this woman and it's so hard to watch, but so well done at the same time. But before it becomes just painful to watch, we get this kind of heartwarming scene where he where he visits his friend, Irene Landry, who we met in season one. Actually, Irene has one of my favorite lines, maybe my favorite lines in all three seasons of Better Call Saul. When she wins bingo in season one, she stands up and Jimmy asks her if she liked cats and she goes, oh, I love kitties. I have two Siamese cats, Oscar and Felix. Felix will wash himself. Oscar won't. 
he he just won't. <laughs> and she just, just looks won't. so disturbed by this. <laughs> she sits down, and I, I think about that line kind of often. Well, since Better Call Saul was spawned from Breaking Bad, perhaps we'll have an Oscar and Felix spinoff as well. <laughs> we'll have the Mall Walkers in it, Rose and Myrtle and all of them. <laughs> yes, another show. So many shows are going to be born from Better Call Saul. It is neat to see how even some random character in the background has a character, has a personality, has little quirks, and ends up being featured in the show. It's very deep. In this scene, though, I think you really do get the sense that Irene likes Jimmy. Like, when he's talking to her, she goes, of course, it's you. And it's so sweet, and it just makes what comes later even more heartbreaking. Yeah, Jimmy, he intentionally denigrates himself later, but when he points out that he's worked hard to cultivate this trust with these people, that's true. I mean, he really has, and for the most part, until then... It wasn't predatory. He really was doing pretty well by him, as far as we could tell. I mean, there's no outward indication that he was cheating anybody. He seemed to be doing their wills and doing all the stuff and was treating them pretty well. He, in fact, was going out of his way, even taking on some risk to protect them. Remember, he caught Sam Piper taking advantage of them, and he researched it kind of on his own time, digging through the dumpster and everything. He really did seem to be trying to do the right thing. And even here, as much as I think what he was doing was despicable and you know the worst thing we've seen him do and just heart-wrenching i also think he's right in a lot of ways that money now is definitely better than money later especially with these seniors involved but the thing is is that he wants them to settle quickly just for himself he's purely self-motivated as much as he might say something else he'll get one million out of this yeah and it's hard for us to judge the scale because like we find out later he grossly exaggerated details of the case and we don't know what that means in terms of how, whether, you know, the peanut scene where he shows them how much more they're getting, he was probably misrepresenting that. We don't know by how much. Maybe maybe it wasn't that much. But I, I feel like it's really hard to judge what the money situation truly was there. It's also possible that Aaron has her own biases. She, yeah. she did say she meant every word she said, but she also was getting a payoff from this case, you know, so... Yeah, and I think bottom line is, though, what she was saying there is what Shay was saying is that greed just took over there. <laughs> Aaron Brill, by the way, that's who Sean was talking about, is the is the woman who works at Davis in Maine that Jimmy clashed with in the previous season. And Irene says that she reminds her of a young Mary Martin uh, <sighs> actress. And Jimmy, of course, doesn't seem super fond of Aaron, although the feeling is certainly mutual. (laughs) But in real life, they have a long history together because that actress was on Bob Odenkirk's Mr. Show, his sketch show, when she was four years old as his daughter. Whoa. Whoa. Jimmy's plan basically revolved around sinking Irene and making her look like she had no regard for her friends in terms of their monetary needs. And obviously Jimmy is very good at this sort of thing. He even points out in episode 10 that he's not good at building things. He's great at tearing them down. And sure enough, he really expertly tore her down (laughs) with the whole shoe thing. You see, he had his trunk full of shoes. It's just like, wow. Even later when he fixes things with Irene and her friends, it's through tearing himself down. You're right. It's a like a positive destruction sort of way is the best he could do to salvage the situation. I can't help but wonder watching all that how much he and we are clouded by Chuck's statements. You know, when Chuck tells Jimmy, you mess people up, you can't build things, you tear it down. How much of that is this perspective? Maybe it's just me trying to be positive. When the whole thing started, I didn't see it going down this dark path of Jimmy being quite this manipulative and ruining Irene. I thought that, oh, he'll plant a seed. Hey, we should get the money now. Let's talk to the people at Sandpiper and get them 
more motivated to get this money. I didn't see it being such this manipulative, destructive thing that Jimmy was going to go down a path of. And he also, not that it really absolves him of any blame at all, which he, of course, admits to himself later, seemingly through his actions, that he thought he could undo the damage that Irene and her friends had. He thought he could manipulate them into taking the money and then fix their friendship and then everything fine. He, His intentions, as very misguided as they were, it was that he wouldn't do any long-term damage. It's just, it was very silly of him to think that. <laughs> they, were, they were selfish and inconsiderate, but not mean or evil. Yeah. As Jimmy was putting this master plan all together, I remember thinking as he's doctoring up those bingo balls, how it reminded me of Nacho and his master plan doctoring up the pills for Hector. Yeah, that's really kind of an interesting little parallel there. Yeah, a lot of hard work going into their schemes. Yeah. I thought it was really striking, especially having gone back to the scene with Irene winning bingo in season one. Just the huge difference in her win. In the first season, she gets a huge round of applause, and she gets to make her nice little speech. And in this one, nothing. And she's so upset, she just tosses the prize There were crickets. The there were crickets. It wasn't nothing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of interesting stuff going on with Howard in these final two episodes, starting, I guess, with... Jimmy meeting with him and claiming your assistant froze me out blah 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 and Howard just kind of turns it on him and isn't buying any of this he sees through Jimmy calls him Gollum which is really kind of accurate <laughs> <laughs> and especially given what we know he was doing to Irene like Howard doesn't know what's being done to Irene but oh man if he did it would have been even more righteous fury I thought that was neat, too, him calling him Gollum. If you think about it, that's good time period placement. This is happening in the early 2000s when the Lord of the Rings movies have been released. That's something that would have been part of pop culture at that moment. It makes sense for that to be the little jab he makes it. Yeah, Jimmy. that's a good point. Yeah, I like this scene a lot. I also liked some of Howard's mannerisms or how he said certain things. When he was responding to Jimmy, he said, Please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but I do like seeing more of Howard here. Not only is he getting more airtime, but more of his personality is coming through. I think we've seen several times there's more to him than what's on the surface. And I think generally he's a good guy and a positive person, but man, he's really being tugged at here in some negative directions, and we see it coming out, and then good performances too. One thing that really strikes me about Howard is how he went from someone you were tricked into disliking into someone who is very sympathetic now. I mean, he's certainly not without his flaws, but he's very upright. He's, you know, not underhanded for the most part. Would his signature Hamlindigo Blue be a plus or a negative for him? <laughs> Good question. Tough well, question. I'm going to have to say a plus because I want there to be Kim Lindigo Blue, and that would be a plus, so to be fair. What we watched the latest episode of Talking Saul, Patrick Fabian pointed out that in the first season, scene he's ever basically introduced on the show in season one jimmy refers to him as lord vader like <laughs> right. that what a way to set the tone for that character and ever since then he's been trying to live up from being called lord vader and it's <laughs> happened i mean he has just it's been very gradual but when he opens his heart up to chuck saying i can't believe you did this i can't believe you sued me just just like that like on just the mere suggestion you should retire an image of chuck just holding his hand out for the handshake deal option three <laughs> howard just stares at it he's like i know you know like this is not happening you can't just undo this like i'm super super hurt you could tell how tough that was for howard that 
he tries to maintain this facade of being, you know, a leader and being happy and being positive, and it's just too much. It's just Chuck has just pushed him too far. But at the same time, he's got this kind of trap for Chuck. He's says you win to Chuck, but he really kind of won in his own way by by calling Chuck's bluff, you know, and setting up the very public retirement scene. Maybe a victory for Howard. But an expensive one. Yeah, I mean, not a, def, certainly not a, I meant more of a moral victory. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's just throwing his money around all over the place in both of these episodes. <laughs> yeah. He tried to pay Jimmy off, too. Yeah, here, take a hand out. Yeah. And I bet he wish he did that 15K back from Kim, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> certainly when it comes to this settlement money, we don't know whether Jimmy ever ended up getting the settlement money. But that said, I'm sure Jimmy, as Saul, has made a whole lot of money, and he would have spent this settlement money if he'd gotten it already for his business for his law firm it's true he does he does we see him breaking bad him charging really exorbitant sums really large percentages and uh, yeah i agree he seems to have a good income <laughs> as saw later he also might have gotten a lot of money extorted away from him with the people he's involved with he might not get to keep all of his own he might have to find ways to secretly maneuver on his own money given the people he's dealing with they might try to take advantage of him that's know. a good point yeah I thought that this might have some huge ramifications for Jimmy, this whole deal with him manipulating these old women, but it seems to have been taken care of. He ran that con with Aaron Brill to fix things where he left his microphone on on purpose so that everyone would hear this stage play that they, you know, prepared. And I don't know if that's going to hurt him in the future. If Aaron is, you know, at all malicious towards him or would have the ability to block him out of that. I don't know if this is the last we've seen of this, if this money is going to come into play later. It's difficult to know for us us laymen to know how the laws work in these settlement cases and exactly whether Jimmy went too far and in which way and whether there's enough proof of it. So it's really hard for us to comment on that. But I guess the possibility remains that he could somehow not get the settlement money. It seemed to me, I might be assuming too much, that he will still get it just down the road sometime. He can't hurry it up like he wanted to. While Jimmy is on this mission to get this settlement money and all his conniving to that end, Kim is on her mission to impress Messe Verde and now Gatwood, we see her pushing herself harder than ever. She never relents. She just gets further and further into her work, staying up later, working longer. Already we had seen her spending the night at work, you know, showering at the gym, realizing that she has this extra burden to take on with Gatwood and what that means. And of course, there's going to end up being consequences for this. Of course, there was that very striking, contrasting scene when Jimmy walks in wanting to drink and celebrate, and Kim just wants him to just wait a few hours. Just yeah, she's hold just trying, on. She's trying to remain calm, and he's just being really just a jerk, you know, just not thinking about her at all. And then Jimmy makes Francesca take a shot with him <laughs> when she comes back in. She's so uncomfortable there. It's a great job of acting. But Kim is really, really working too hard. She took on this Gatwood case because she, I don't know, felt some responsibility for their law office, felt some want to take care of Jimmy, to have them have each other's back, and so she wanted to work harder, I think. I think she also just has a natural drive. We've seen her do it in other places at other times. 
I think she, in fact, responds to adversity by working harder. It's a natural re response for her. And she, if you recall, when she decided to take the Gatwood case, it was it was she had decided not to. And then she had this awkward scene with Jimmy when he's clearly lying to her, lying on his back, playing the guitar. And then she changes her mind immediately and comes back out. She's like, all right, I'm working on this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's because she's like, Jimmy's doing some shady things to get this money. I need to bring in more money. I oh, think I agree. that is a lot of it. But also, she has a lot of pride. It might also be, I don't know, almost like Chuck, maybe, how it's her way of, like, avoiding the real problem out there, just burying herself deeper into work. One scene that I particularly enjoyed was when she, was when her car gets stuck in this rut out on the oil field, and she doesn't call for help. She wants to look capable. There was this one little detail in the scene that I thought was just such a hilarious touch, but also said a lot about her character, is that she's using her tape recorder to record her thoughts, which is one of very smart thing to be doing, and then she deals with all of this stuff with the car, gets right back in and just finishes her thoughts yep, yep. <laughs> yeah that was great she just doesn't hardly miss a beat i also like how they give you little clues as to how she's burdening herself not just the staying up all night and the drinking tons of coffee and being late and just being a little bit fried you know mm -hmm. she also just i noticed that she kind of shuddered a little and shivered when she confirmed that she could do this Gatwood job. She told him to his face, I can do it in two weeks. And she kind of like trembled a little. It was like, I've accepted this huge burden. And she was kind of realizing the it. The weight totally. of it physically affected her. Yeah. Yeah. And of course it was too much. It was a sort of foreshadowing there, how she just barely saved the car from being smashed. And later on the car gets smashed. A thing I really appreciated about Jimmy after Cam does crash and burn we see Jimmy being there for her, and it's something I appreciate about Jimmy for all his flaws and bad decisions and, I don't know, bad luck or whatever else. He is a good person in a lot of ways. He understands how to develop good relationships. Yeah, that's something he knows how to build. Yeah, yeah. You could see someone. I almost even expected of Jimmy, although reflecting on it, that it makes sense that he didn't do this, but someone coming at Kim with, what were you thinking? How could you do that? Do you know what you could? You know, all these, like... I don't know, concerns and accusations, questions. What happened? How did this happen? Where are you? Just, know? Are you okay? And he didn't even yeah. do that. No questions, no judgments. Come on, let's go. Yeah, I'll give just, you some Gatorade. He's just there to support her. He just, does she need to stay the night? That was his first question. It was to the nurse. You yeah, know? yeah. I also really like this really, really short scene that we got with Jimmy and Kim when we see Jimmy picking up Kim's papers out in the dark, just her in the car watching. And it's, I don't know how many seconds, it's got to be really short, but it had so much meaning and it was so moving to me. It was beautiful. We get a longer scene between them at breakfast when there's some dialogue and a lot of interesting things come up. She's, first of all, a little bit hobbled, which is already a sign that she's not going to be able to go back to doing what she's doing. Although later we see her start to try to do that. Jimmy brings up the situation with the office and subletting it and kind of letting her off the hook a bit. Yeah, he's sort of tacitly, you know, under the surface saying, let's not push ourselves so much our relationship relationships in general are what's important not this job and she realizes that and then she again like as he said starts to push herself and be like gotta work on this Gatwood case and she I think zones out and kind of just remembers what Jimmy said and what I'm sure she's feeling herself about how fried she is I thought it was a really good moment. I think she was realizing when she was looking at her schedule. She was realizing how she had to move things. You saw her fingers even like tracing the days of the week. And I think she was 
She was basically drawing all of it. She yeah. was taking all right. of it. She that was calculating <laughs> all this, and there's no sleep anywhere in there. It's yeah. the same thing I was doing before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, and she's all beat up. She needs to rest. Like, Jimmy was yeah. like, don't have coffee, Gatorade first, coffee after, you know, and don't take the good stuff until you've <laughs> eaten, you know? Yeah. I liked also what Kim said about her accident there. You know, first she says that she could have killed someone, which shows that she's not really thinking about herself. She's thinking about other people and how she could have ruined someone else's life by i mean kill, ruin a bunch of lives by killing them and jimmy of course counters with yeah yourself because he cares about her yeah and he cares about himself he cares about the self you know and, and jimmy is selfish a lot of the time and for being you know very technical she is most likely to kill herself rather than <laughs> someone else yeah. given that there's a chance she collides with somebody but there's what happened which is that she just collides with rocks <laughs> given jimmy's selfishness i think it's all the more meaningful how much he cares about kim yeah, I agree. I thought there was another really great line that Kim says in this scene when she, when Jimmy's expressing how guilty he feels, and she says, I'm an adult. I made a choice, which says a lot about how much maybe we blame people for things. It even made me think of Jimmy causing that rift between the old women. Yeah, he manipulated that a lot, but those women were adults. They chose to deal with that in this awful way. Jimmy is mostly to blame, but they're somewhat to blame for how awful that was for Irene. Yeah, they maybe turned on her a little too quickly, a little too easily, you could say. And in Kim's case, yeah, absolutely. Jimmy didn't force her to stay up all night and, like, nearly work herself to death. That's certainly not Jimmy's fault. And Kim, being responsible, wouldn't blame him for that. Because that's what she means when she says, I, you know, got into that car. It was my choice. It was Kim's choice as well to get a bunch of good movies. (laughs) (laughs) We weren't able to see what they all were. And Jennifer Hutchison, the writer of the episode, wasn't able to remember what they all were. But we were able to know what a few were. One of them that we didn't see, but she told us that she made sure that Kim had it was The Fifth Element. Which is a great movie. Some sort of Monty Python movie was in there as well. And, of course, To Kill a Mockingbird, which she watched twice. (laughs) At least. She might have watched it a third time that we didn't even see. She says it was her favorite movie as a kid. Yeah, she says she wanted to be Atticus Finch. (laughs) And then she says, yeah, didn't you? And it's like almost she, it was like a very innocently question, like a very childlike. She's going back to her her childhood and being like, yeah, of course, he's a hero. Didn't you want to be him? And Jimmy's like, "Eh, I didn't really aspire to be a hero. That was more Chuck's thing. (laughs) And then later there's this great parallel where she says, he kind of says, you are kind of saving. He's like, no, I'm not. I just helped a mid-sized bank become a bigger regional bank or whatever and that's funny because chuck he says chuck wanted to be like atticus finch and chuck also is basically just a corporate lawyer which isn't a bad thing it's not a you know i'm not it's not a, a condemnation but it's not heroic <laughs> they're not exactly out defending the rights of minorities or whatever right and howard even gave chuck the opportunity to make more of a difference in the world by being a professor by lecturing which actually is teaching people things and to write a book about whatever that specific law was that they were talking about that chuck always wanted to write the book on that would have enacted some change one of the themes of better call saul especially this season i think more than any of the others is with chuck both being a very proud man and being very poor at reading the emotional impact of what of his decisions he frequently mistakes how his actions are going to impact jimmy and in this case he very much misreads howard and i think interestingly enough howard very much misread Chuck. I mean, he first of all, when he gets the letter, he's like, "Oh, good, this is the resignation letter." Get and then the he's jazz like, band. Oh, "Yeah, like, come on, Howard, you d- you pointed out later how long you guys have been working together, right? Seventeen some years or something like that." And he's been been mentored by Chuck. How did you not notice that Chuck is extremely proud? Like, that's a thing. That's kind of a misread on Howard's part. 
I mean, I think it also has to do with Howard just thinking that Chuck's pride doesn't have to do with himself personally, but in the firm and looking for the best of the firm. And he just genuinely thought, I think, that of course Chuck will see that this is endangering the firm. This is normal to do this. Chuck's also going through some big changes at the moment. Maybe he would reevaluate after that hearing and realization and everything else. Maybe he would have a new take on things. But it does seem about as odd for Chuck to suddenly retire as it does for Chuck to suddenly sue. Yeah, I agree. Like, Chuck's response is way out of line, but I do think Howard should have probably approached it a little more delicately and should not have expected Chuck to just go along with it like he did. Like, it really seemed like the way he read that letter or when he thought it was a resignation letter was like, really? Do you really think that? I mean, obviously, from the viewer's perspective, it's very obvious he's not going to. But... So maybe I'm reading, maybe I'm not properly judging Howard's perspective, but I think it was a bit of an oversight on his part. But I agree, like, ultimately, Chuck is the one who's far more out of line here. All this spills over into the final episode at this meeting of the board or whoever they have assembled in the meeting room with Chuck and Howard. Chuck thinks he's got Howard. He, you know, he lays out the two bad options, but I've got this third option. Of course, you know, we've already talked about how Howard is just not having it. Chuck makes this big speech to Howard and, you know, imagine him as an enemy and all that. And he is dangerous and, you know, he's righteous or whatever. But he asks him for $8 million. He thinks he's made this ultimate play. This won't happen. It'll be too much for them. And Howard calls this bluff. He yeah. actually does it. He he takes out a bunch of personal loans and writes him a check for $3 million because the contract says it can be three installments. So Chuck just totally misread that. He misgambled with that and got ousted. Chuck really thought he had backed Howard and HHM into a corner. He didn't imagine Howard using his own money. That is something he did not see coming at all. And it really shook him because it really showed the emotional appeal I think Chuck at first kind of read it as just a tactic, and when the but when the money was laid out like that, he realized that oh my, he was a little shook himself. You know, he's he just realized maybe that he had gone too far, or that he had or that he had been outwitted, or both. I think for one thing that he didn't really care about the money; that it wasn't really a win for him to get this money. He wanted to maintain his position, yes. and so this money was like. Uh, Sort of this, I guess technically I won. It's not what I really wanted though, you know. I wonder if he cashed that check. Did he deposit the check? I'm guessing he didn't. I don't know, but uh, it's definitely possible. Fandomedia.reviews. What might be the final culmination between Jimmy and Chuck, assuming Chuck is dead, which is a possibility we can discuss later, we get this setup with the lantern concept of the beginning of episode 10. The teaser is young Chuck and young Jimmy sitting in a tent with a lantern and he's reading him the story Adventures of Mabel. And wow, how good was that kid's voice? Like, Yeah, I almost was wondering if that was Chuck, if that was Michael McKean, like adjusting his voice to sound younger, if they found some kid who had a voice that sounded like Chuck's. In the Better Call Saul Insider podcast, they talked about how that young actor had clearly studied Michael McKean. Hmm. So I think that they didn't do anything to that. That was just a very good impressionist that got it really good. And this scene hits really hard because it's a very touching little childhood moment and shows how connected they were. And later, it's just heartbreaking to see them split apart and maybe forever and that book that he was reading the adventures of mabel is the book that they talked about in the episode mabel that that was this connecting point between them that that allowed chuck to access this nostalgia and warm feeling before he went cold again but what was interesting about that is that 
This was part of the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul team's improvisation. They didn't plan that. They just, sometimes things just work out organically, that they have planted a seed, that this was a book that they read, and then when the writers are then writing this episode, they put in The Adventures of Mabel as the book that he's reading. Yeah, and Vince that. Gilligan was like, oh, how nice that you guys did that. It was not planned at all. Makes perfect sense, though. So. You also see The Adventures of Mabel um, at the end of the episode, just, you know, it's on his bookshelf. It's one of his books that he owns. Which, by itself is strong evidence that what we already know is that Chuck was lying when he said, you never meant that much to me. That is a very cold, calculated way of being as mean as possible, as hitting Jimmy as hard as he can by saying it the way he said it and by acting the way he did and by just kind of casually walking down and reading his newspaper afterwards. It was just so obviously over the top. He says a lot of very cutting things in that scene. I think that's the most. But yeah. even from like the first thing they say to each other, he says, "I always told you I'd get better. You just never believed me." That's yeah. never that's mm-hmm. been the that's never been the impression that I got out of their relationship that Jimmy never thought he would get better and was like, "It'll never happen, Chuck." Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy's always been supportive of him. Yeah, that's that's particularly galling that yes, I can you can kind of understand why Chuck has problems with with Jimmy, they Jimmy has done really bad things to Chuck and vice versa. But wow, this is just ignoring the good as well. Because Jimmy, in a lot of ways, did take care of him. Like, he didn't mean that much to him. He was getting you through the day, every day, really being an important part of his life. So, yeah, that's just... It was clearly... like Jimmy intellectually knows that Chuck is lying, but it's still going to be really painful. I think it might be more painful in the long run or stick with Jimmy for even longer. The line that Chuck said that he said, you're going to hurt everyone around you. Yeah, especially if he maybe blames himself for Chuck killing himself, assuming that's what happened. Because Jimmy does kind of tend to blame himself for things, even though he's someone who will kind of willfully ignore collateral damage. When he's confronted with it, he does tend to take it seriously. He's got a little bit of a hero's complex, I'd say. Yeah, so I think I could definitely see him being guilty about this maybe more so a a lot more so than he should be i think at least part of what chuck was doing too is trying to distance himself from jimmy just trying to keep jimmy away from him which also might be at least partly because chuck feels guilty over how he treated jimmy it's he needs to jimmy coming around to check up on him makes him feel guilty and maybe even weak like he doesn't want to need Jimmy to help him. Jimmy, this screw-up, I don't need Jimmy to help me. Jimmy, get out of here. Get away from me. You know, he's just saying what he needed to say to get Jimmy away from him, maybe to clear his own mind from his need for Jimmy as a brother. I think clearly, though, this altercation rattled him a lot. He felt bad about what he said. It set off his... It set off his electrical sensitivity, and he has trouble sleeping. He takes whatever pills that he takes, and he says his, you know, color thing, gold comforter, you know, what green chair. And then he goes downstairs to turn the breakers off, We and that is our lead-in to this meltdown that he has. Yeah, it's really very much like a meltdown is a great way to put it, because it's a very slow burn. He, after the altercation with Jimmy... He just starts to slowly lose all the progress he had made until he's worse than he ever had been at any point ever. And then he, I guess, kills himself. It seems to be the likely result of the way the flame spread. But as even the creators have said, we don't know whether he's really dead or not. And of course, they seem to indicate they're going to use him more for more flashbacks. So... It's hopefully Michael McKean will still be in the show <laughs> because of the flashbacks. But I think he definitely will be still in the show because of the flashbacks. I think so, too. Yeah, I agree. I, I would bet on that. But whether he's actually alive or not, that is a lot harder to get. I would 
I'm a lot less sure about that. I think he's probably dead. I, I think that he is. I mean, I feel like part of what was happening there was he was turning his house into kindling. You know, he was mm-hmm. his books were scattered everywhere, just bits of wood. He, he was really setting it up to just go immediately. But I don't think he was intentionally doing it. I don't think. But it is what he ended up doing. I was thinking that they have an out for how he could be alive pretty easily and it would still explain what he was doing. I don't think he was entirely in his right mind. But if he were to see what he did to his house and realize how crazy this makes him look, burn it up. Just get rid of the evidence and then your pride is somewhat restored and you don't have your house anymore. I still think he's dead. I want him to be dead. Partially because I want the Chuck part of this storyline of the series to be over. I, I want to move forward past that and I don't see how we really can if he's still in the show. It, that does make sense. I didn't consider A, he might suddenly snap to his senses and run out of the house and B, he might realize what an embarrassing thing that he's done and want to cover it up. So, And since pride is so important to him, yes, yeah. he does not want to be seen like that. That's his final like moments or whatever. These scenes, because it was a series of scenes that we saw throughout episode 10 that we would check back in on and see how it's, you know, regressed even more. And there were two scenes in that in particular that I wanted to mention. One that I thought was just like achingly tragic and it all was, but in particular there's this one shot of him just in bed alone with his book on the side where like his wife would have slept and he's just staring at the ceiling and he's just it's just devastating to see how alone he is in that moment but the other one was funny it was like very comical to me throughout all of this it's when he's using the phone and the first time he's using the (laughs) phone and he's been trying to figure out what the power is yeah where this leak is this power leak or whatever and so the first time he's using the phone i'm like you're the phone right <laughs> it's in your hand <laughs> and then he uses the phone you know after that and he suddenly realizes he like pushes it away from him and turns <laughs> it off and goes out to check the meter it wasn't the phone <laughs> yeah it's it's really a great it's like a clinic in acting facial acting because he's got no dialogue there's no one to talk to other than the brief moments where he's talking to the phone company or the power company rather and it's all just his facial expressions and his frustration and his effort apparently he really did all that with multiple takes just hammering away at the wall and tearing things down that was really michael mckean that wasn't like a stunt destroyer (laughs) (laughs) stunt demolition man yeah a lot of it was pretty humorous until you saw how dark it went it was kind of like oh when he went out with a baseball bat you know that was kind of a punctuation moment of humor but in reflection it's a lot darker and sadder it's a bit of a metaphor chuck constantly blames other things for the problems he never blame he never kind of looks inside except for you know and the mental illness is kind of a sign of that it's like it's kind of eating him alive until he because he's not addressing it properly when he did address it properly he started to get better but once he has this falling out with his brother he doesn't blame that for why he's feeling horrible again and he just blames this electricity leak and he obsesses it over so much and it's really a metaphor for his own self-destruction which culminates in his actual (laughs) self-destruction i think this is a really interesting subject actually it's just how they've dealt with his mental illness what it's a metaphor for exactly because it isn't the same as a lot of mental illness and they've talked about how there are some key differences there and I don't know how I feel about it I feel like some parts of it are like achingly real like very you know too relevant to I'm sure too many people in their lives when you see him have these meltdowns and things like that and his issues but also it's clearly more triggered by these flaws and these issues that he has with his family than it is with his brain acting up or anything like that which is an interesting take on mental illness 
And Vince Gilligan talked about how his interpretation, and that's his because his isn't necessarily the same as Peter Gould, the other showrunner, is that his mental illness comes from his soul. I'm not a big fan of that interpretation that, you know, he's poisoned inside and, like, he's feeling this bitterness and that's why it's come out. That is what they've done, but I think it's an element that I feel, that I feel doesn't appeal to me very much, that idea as someone with mental illness myself, the idea that it's because you yourself are, like, damaged and it's coming out and it's your fault in a certain sense is what it's saying. Hmm. I tend to think that it's usually some combination of both. Of course, I'm not an expert or educated in this exactly, but just my, I don't know, perception of the world is that this mixture of what might be a chemical imbalance of a quote-unquote normal brain combined with some traumatic moment in your life very stressful can play yeah. out in an illness like this you know I, or I, trigger I, it or make it yeah. worse yeah. i can see how this sort of uh obsessive nature that chuck might have might have helped lead him to his success when it's positive stuff driving him but when negative stuff drives him it leads to his destruction so. it's true i mean that's also that's a very good parallel for what howard's experience was with chuck it's like, as a teammate whoa just having Chuck as your teammate in the law was incredibly powerful. But yeah, and then, you know, that culminates with imagine me as your enemy. Yeah, and, and indeed, he was a terrible enemy. And you often see in the world, you know, genius and mental illness crossing paths with each other. That's true. Mike takes a step further towards working for Gus. And this meeting with Lydia Rodart Quayle is wonderful because it personifies Mike's character quite a bit. She gives her full, lengthy name, and he just responds with Mike. Lydia Rodart Quayle. Mike. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, yeah. By takes a step further, you mean definitively starts working for, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so obvious what's happening here because Gus even, like, takes care of the taxes. You know, he's really just laying it on thick here. Like, Mike, you're really good. And and just to make sure we get that, Lydia straight up says, you must be really good at what you do for Mm -hmm. Gus to be doing this for you. He's like, what do you mean? Doesn't he do this for a lot of people? He's like, this is the first time I've ever done this, you know? And that could be a lie, but... It certainly sends the message that, no, Mike is special, and Gus really sees him as special, and future events certainly back that up. I'm led to believe it's true, too. We'll talk about this more in a color theory, but the fact that she was wearing red, but her assistant was wearing blue and green, Mm. it doesn't seem like he's mixed up in this. This is something she's just doing this time, you know? This whole thing is driven by Mike's interest in protecting his family. That's the thing that's most important to him. He wants to make sure that money gets to them somehow. It would really be bad if that was all a waste. Parallel to that... Nacho is mostly interested in protecting his father. He certainly has his life to deal with being his, you know, a a drug trafficker, but he absolutely wants to keep his father separate from that. And you can tell that he really cares for his father. Yeah, he's even willing to ruin his relationship with his father potentially in order to save him. And this had similarities and parallels to me to Mike telling his son to just go along with it to try to save him, which is exactly what Nacho was doing. But there was another interesting parallel or contrast here in that Nacho sees his father's goodness in this episode, in episode nine, as this virtue. And he seems to want to protect it and he says he's a good man and all these things whereas jimmy gives this whole speech about his father and he says his father's goodness was a weakness he was too lenient with people people walked all over him yeah it doesn't seem like nacho's father has that kind of problem in fact in episode 10 he does the opposite of just rolling over being too nice he stands up to don hector 
briefly. <laughs> and, you know, Nacho talks him out of that. As Ashea said, he, in doing so, he pushes his father further away, alienates him even further. Part of how he did it was with these veiled threats against his family. Even if Nacho doesn't like the idea or wouldn't do it himself, he's like, look, this is what's going to happen, you know? And I think that these observations that you guys are making, these parallels and the dynamics of these relationships... It's why I love the show so much. It's so perfectly, beautifully written and pieced together. I love it. And there's two other really small, subtle things that I think had great meaning in just this scene with Nacho and his father. One was that he says, again, he's working for them again, which tells us that there's this history between Nacho and the Salamancas and that he either stopped and has gotten back in or, or, or he told his father that he stopped and he never really did, which... You can just see why his father is even more likely to become estranged from his son if this is the second time that he's done it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, Sean, you said you like these parallels so much. One of the things that makes these parallels so great is that they're parallel type situations in very different circumstances, very different walks of life, very different parts of society. And a good example here... Chuck and Hector have a lot in common. Not the cruelty, not the violence, not the gangster stuff, not the lawyering, but the pride. Hector is filled with pride. He is, it defines him almost more than anything else. Maybe not more than his brutality, but <laughs> his pride is a huge part of him. His face, when Nacho's father said, get out of my store, he was more, his eyes got big. He was legitimately surprised, even though he was... The whole point was to make sure the father was going to be loyal in the first place. That's why he was kind of approaching him and checking him out. And of course, at the end, his pride is what basically causes him to have a conniption fit. But Yeah, it does seem like Hector was more concerned about being able to push around Nacho's dad than it was about the actual operation. In this scene with Nacho and his father, one of the other really beautiful, meaningful moments that I hadn't realized just how symbolic it was until I read an interview or listened to an interview with Michael Mando. It might have been on the Better Call Saw Insider podcast. I can't quite recall. But he talked about how this pouring out of the half glass of milk is very symbolic of the innocence fading in this relationship and hadn't even thought of that, but just how well done. I mean, just not long before that scene, we had his father praising him for getting there early and he's he tells him, oh yeah, I was there to work, check on the invoices and mm. all that. So yeah, that's like, I'm proud of you, son. And then we go to this. It's like, oh, yeah. Fandomedia.reviews. On another level here, though, there's a whole other dynamic going on. Not only is Hector pushing his way into Nacho's father's store, but he's doing this against the wishes of the cartel. And that's huge. I think he's even more likely to bully people like Manuel, that's Nacho's father, when he himself is being what he considers pushed around. He's lashing out on a lot of people. That makes sense. Yeah, he's, because he's being bullied, he wants to bully somebody else. That is classic bully behavior. Even, you know, Psychology 101, they teach you that. <laughs> I also wanted to highlight, you know, Hector often takes these pills and Nacho whenever he takes the pills Nacho's like making this face trying to keep a mm-hmm. poker face but I just think it's really funny and a great choice how they have Hector just drink the pills down yeah, just real tough back thing yeah. to do yeah <laughs> we see this trouble that Hector is bringing to Nacho spill over into the final episode when they show up in that awesome scene when they all come up in the red car and get out and oh man you just know trouble's coming here and Nacho, the whole way, is trying to talk Hector through this. He's like, we'll do it all in the back. Let's go in through the back. We can do it all at night. I'll be here to make sure it all goes down. We can just take care of this, and no one even has to know what's going on. We'll do it all in the back. And Hector's like, uh-huh, 
Where's your dad? Yeah, where's Poppy? Let, let's a, go up front and talk to him. It's such a vain <laughs> attempt to put like this flimsy barrier between the operation. It's probably the last ditch attempt that just does not work. Hector's not having it. He's got to. It's not enough. I don't trust him. Yeah, it's not enough to have this operation to get the money to have his new outlet or whatever. He has to be pushy about his power. Goes up there, flaunts his money to Nacho's dad. Oh, it was so it was so tough to watch. It was so tough to watch Nacho being stuck in this awful situation. And then they walk right out the front door. No attempt. You just, just like when he walked into to Gus's chicken shop, he just walks in the front door, just no regard for being discreet or careful, <laughs> just completely arrogant about it all. Classic flashy gangster. We had a small <laughs> Easter egg clue for Hector's eventual fate, of course. The little bell that's in his father's shop when Hector is laying out the money. That's exactly like the kind of bell that Hector himself had to use in Breaking Bad. Oh, that's right. It's like he was buying it right there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really good. I wanted to highlight in this episode, in particular in this scene, but really in the season as a whole, especially this latter half, Michael Mando just kills it with the acting. He has so much behind his eyes when he can keep such a stoic face and you can really see all of these things flashing in his head. And, for instance, when he's trying to engender this deal between his father and Hector, he has to, like, show his father that you you have to do this, but he also has to keep a very tough front for Hector and seem like he's on Hector's side. Yeah, it's really... It's it's almost a setup, in a way, because Nacho, with his stone face that he keeps so often sets up the softness that he shows in these final two episodes. A little bit with his father when he's alone with his father, but when he's in front of Hector, like you say, he keeps his demeanor. But when in the final scene, when he's kind of caught unawares and people show up and he's like, I'm not, I wasn't here to kill Hector. No, I'm going to put my gun away. He's got a bit of shock on his face. He's a little bit surprised. He goes along with it and it works out. It's smooth, but... It's, you can tell in his face, it's something's different and it's a, it's a change. And because he's so uniform before that, it really stands out here. Yeah, I thought it really did. I really liked that sequence as well with it's so dramatic and he's staking out Hector and he sees him go in there and he's got his gun and he's like, what's going to happen? And then his other henchmen friends pull up and they're like, oh, you got my message? And he just has to pretend he's seen this message and knows what's going on. They're like, you packing? Yeah. Yeah, actually, (laughs) Of course I am, am. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then Hector walks out and he's like, they're coming. You know, and like, okay, who? Oh, of course. I guess I'll figure that out in a second. (laughs) We also had another element of comical nature here in that Hector is so whiny. Yeah. (laughs) It was Salamanca blood. It's Salamanca. It is about, it is personal. Yeah, he is really whiny. (laughs) Not getting his way. It was a very tense moment and uh, all very well built up to. We finally see what Nacho intended in the first place was for Hector to kind of lose control of himself. Pills not work, he collapsed to the ground. And on a lot of levels here, it makes sense for Gus to be the one that jumps to action. If he had just stood there and not done anything, someone else, you know, one of Hector's own men would have, like, jumped in, taken some action. They might not have thought to call the police. They might have tried to be more covert about it. Maybe they don't know CPR or whatever. But Gus comes out on top looking like a leader, looking like a hero. There's no way anyone could like accuse him of having been involved in Hector's downfall. I agree. And additionally, for Gus, what's most important is he wants to be the one to kill him. Hector can't just randomly die of a heart attack. I gotta be the one who does it. Yeah. And he wants it to be a long, brutal, painful yeah. death. He does he not want... To suffer. Yeah, he said he'd a bullet to the head would be too kind, he said before. 
I agree with what Sean's point here, too, because Juan Bolsa is a higher up in the organization, and he's like, you shouldn't be here. He shows really good grace under pressure there, under mm. fire. He, he responds immediately, like you said, and Juan Bolsa is going to go back and tell Eladio the Chilean did a good job again. You know, he's doing, he's, he's a great distributor, he's handling his business, he's discreet, and he even handled himself well in this crisis. So, I agree, it's really just all around looks great for Gus. I think one of the most mesmerizing aspects of the scene for me was watching how Nacho and Gus looked at each other, how they took note of each other, and Gus seemed to notice some things about him, that maybe there was something going on behind his eyes. He noticed him picking up the pills, and then he gave the pill bottle to the EMT, but he knows that he picked up those pills, and I think that's the seed of suspicion that Nacho isn't on Hector's side. He definitely gave him a look that was a little, like... Gus kind of kind of squinted a little as he looked at Nacho. Nacho wasn't looking at him at that moment, but he was definitely thoughtful, and it was absolutely a meaningful look that we're me- that we were meant to interpret something along those lines. I don't think they ever made eye contact, but they did each look over at the other one and contemplate what might be going on here. Like, what's really going on yeah. here? Both of them had that moment of what else is going on here. They are both smart, and I think that Nacho probably already has on some level pieced together that that Gus is smart and he's got this master plan but i don't think that gus had given nacho a second thought until now he's realizing hector is a pretty crappy guy and i know what it's like to have to work for crappy guys you're gonna plot against them yeah you know, if might, i can do it nacho can do it right yeah and then he might be thinking like maybe gus is a much better guy to work for this guy knows his business and he's not gonna like try to kill my father yeah yeah but how would he pull that off? You know, Hector would never allow him to just go work for Gus. That would be, speaking of hurting his pride. <laughs> well, I wonder how long Hector is going to be out of commission. Mm. I was going to say one way or the other, even if they aren't or don't suspect each other of some sort of conniving, they are realizing in this moment that they're going to have to work together. Yeah. Maybe only for a day. Maybe Hector will be fine tomorrow. But maybe yeah. it'll be weeks. Maybe Hector's going to die. They're probably going to have to develop a relationship with each other. And so they're going to size each other up. Yeah. What I wonder is, one, how much does Gus know that Mike has interacted with Nacho? Mm, and if he up, yeah. if he does know, will he ask him about Nacho? Good point. And I'd like to, to build on your point, Sean, as well. They don't know yet that how severe this is going to be. They don't know that Hector is basically going to be uh, not an invalid, but he physically incapacitated. Incapa- like he won't be able to speak anymore. He still has a lot of mental acuity, but his body will be almost useless. Yeah, and I don't know how quickly it'll be that they'll set up a system for him to communicate easily. Yeah, that might take a while to come to fruition. Especially given Hector's nature, he's probably going to be stubborn and resistant and angry and frustrated. He's probably not going to be like, okay, let me improve myself. Let me find a way to move forward. He's just going to be, you know, hostile. Yeah, because again, pride. What a thing for a proud man to go through, a proud person in general to to, to be reduced to this. It's very, you know, a lot of people would take this as something, you know, reflecting on themselves. In fact, it's almost exactly what Gus wanted. Yeah, it's true. Nacho did it for him. I think Gus is going to wind up pretty happy with the status (laughs) quo, like, as far as that goes. Visual elements. On a somewhat lighter note, (laughs) there are a number of visuals in this sequence with Jimmy trying to trick the old women that were actually quite funny or amusing or comical in some way, like that whole trunk full of shoes that he opens up. (laughs) And the fact 
that he takes her old shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and the cat cookies that he quote unquote made, which he, of course, were store bought. I also liked those peanuts that he's pouring and using as the example for them. I thought it was a good visual, but also relevant, I think. I don't think it, I, we talked about this and how it might be misrepresenting it, but I do, don't think it isn't, is that far off. Jimmy leading them in chair yoga was pretty funny. Yeah, the cat and cow poses <laughs> in episode 10 were cracking me up. I also appreciate Jimmy's fashion sense. He had some pretty uh, spiffy jogging suits. <laughs> the bingo ball thing, he was adding the liquid metal there to uh, magnetize those specific balls to get the result he wanted. And, it, of course, it worked perfectly. It was the first five balls spelled out bingo. It wasn't <laughs> There wasn't any... <laughs> It wasn't like a sneaky thing at all. I mean, I don't think anyone suspected any sort of foul play there, but it was pretty funny, just like B I N G, just in a row, basically. Pretty <laughs> incredible odds against that. Yeah. I liked that slow fade that they had, the transition from the empty bingo room to it all set up and full of people. One interesting thing that I learned from the Better Call Saul Insider podcast is that that oil field that Kim goes to. They had to make that. They had to make, you know, an oil rig that's moving and going into the ground. And then they had to use visual effects to have more in the background and things like that. Yeah, they're going to use the oil profits to fund season four. (laughs) (laughs) We've, at several points during the season, we've pointed to smaller incidents that set up larger incidents. And a good example is Kim's little five-minute nap where it just jumped forward to the alarm. They totally got us with that again with her car accident. It was the almost the exact same visual trick and it hit really hard pun intended because <laughs> of how minor the first one was it was just like oh five minute nap oh yeah everybody's felt that everybody's been through that before like the alarm being really jolting and oh how about that but this was I don't, most of us have not lived through that kind of car accident it was well put together too as far as the uh timing and the editing we go from this intense sort of moment she's anxious putting all these binders together jimmy's trying to get her a drink she's like no i gotta go i'm late get these binders in a car she's going through a rehearsal and then suddenly there's this moment of silence lasts maybe two seconds and then boom this cuts her just smash oh man it was startling and i want to give credit to the choice in how they framed that shot right there that they chose that side shot instead of a front shot they even talked about that in the podcast about the thought that they put into that that they recorded multiple and then in editing they pick which one to use that's a good point because in the five minute nap shot it was a frontal shot so it made this a little sneakier you know it wasn't didn't have that same feel so you know you didn't maybe subconsciously see it coming the moment of silence after she stops repeating her lines is just long enough for you to be like hey what's going on here mm-hmm me personally, I thought maybe she was going to just like have a little tear run down her eye, like she was going to break just a little from the pressure. She would recover from it and just still be her tough self. But so that was for me personally, that was like, whoa, <laughs> surprise. It was just long enough for me to start to wonder, like you said, what's going on here? And the flash of a thought is like, is someone going to, you know, is she going to get in a car? I, I didn't occur to me she would fall asleep driving. It makes so much sense. I feel like I should have seen that coming. But I but I thought some tragic thing, something's going to knock her off her course. That She's too determined that things are going too well for how hard she's pushing herself. Something's got to happen here. And how about that awesome, stunning visual of all of her papers scattered on the ground around her crashed car. And they have that crane shot that zooms out to above. And Kim is sort of calm throughout it all really she isn't super panicked but it's just you just are like how is she going to move forward after this this is ruining everything it was yeah sinking sinking feeling in my stomach 
the shot of the papers was so cool that they had to do it twice. They showed mm-hmm. it in the day, and then when they came back to pick the papers up at night, we got to see like a double visual. I like that a lot. A <laughs> uh, fun fact about that is that that road where Kim gets in her accident is the same road where Walter White gets pulled over in Breaking Bad when he's kind of, you know, Breaking Bad, and he's <laughs> trying to speed he's speeding and he's like i'm not gonna get pulled over he's pushing things there (laughs) speaking of seeing something in darkness and in light the scene with nacho and his father where he admits that he's with salamanca again or whatever however the timing of that works out nacho is cast very dark he's wearing a black jacket behind him it's complete darkness and from the father's perspective when the camera's on him he's wearing a white shirt and it's completely lit behind him so it's very much the classic black and white back and forth thing one thing i noticed about episode 10 is that there are a lot of those panning and zooming in and out shots where they're following character whereas normally they have more stationary shots i've found and it's striking when they veer from that and one example for instance is like in the teaser for this episode they zoom in they come in with a crane or whatever they use to the tent and then to the lantern but we see it just countless times in this episode from the meeting between chuck and howard when it zooms out from chuck and zooms out from howard we see it in the balcony at hhm there's just like countless occurrences and i just i feel like there's three times as many in this episode as there are in any typical episode and maybe that's even conservative i mean i think it's an interesting feature of a final couple uh, final episode like that to make it to change the style a little bit to give it that extra climactic feel yeah i, I think guess. it makes it feel more cinematic almost yeah. mm-hmm. it's not exactly an action-oriented show but it gives it that feel of more actiony you know and it literally is more action they're moving the camera it's, yeah. it's camera action a neat little bit that they tied together in that tent, in that opening sequence, there were two things that we saw later in the episode, or even in the, the season, the Band-Aid box. The Band-Aid box that Jimmy had been storing the coins in was in that little tent with him, and the baseball bat that Chuck used to smash the power meter was also in the tent with him. It may have even been the same lantern. I mean, it's just a yeah. gas lantern. It's not like it necessarily would have worn out. I wonder if he still has that tent. I really like that style of tent they have. It's very Boy Scouts, you know, like sharp triangle. If he did, he could have slept in it, just covered it with the tinfoil and just uh, (laughs) been protected. Other than the teaser, at the beginning of episode 10, starts with a shot of Kim's face. Both sides of her face are, are pretty beat up, but it starts on the focused on the side of her face. It's even more beat up, just for extra effect, I guess. Very minor, but something I noticed that I appreciated is that in the first couple of scenes, she still has a bandage on her arm where the IV was. And then later on, that bandage isn't there. But that's a little detail that I was so impressed that they got. And she puts her hand on Jimmy's hand when he puts his hand on her to comfort her. And that's another thing that changes about her. She is noticeably more affectionate towards him physically than she's ever been. She's always been kind of like reserved like devoted but reserved with her touching of him and she kisses him and she touches him a lot just... i mean you could probably count on one hand the number of times we've seen the two of them kiss yeah in this and, show. and mm-hmm. then the, in this episode it's like a couple times but speaking of how detail oriented they are in this scene where kim goes to blockbuster <laughs> they 
they had to put a lot of work into crafting a blockbuster. They aren't out there anymore. And they had to do all of the movie covers. And they had to get the rights to have those movie covers on there. And they had to pick out what movies Kim was going to watch. And a really interesting thing that Peter Gould talked about in the Insider podcast was that he used an interesting technique that he had learned in a film class for this scene. It's called flat space, where he had the characters only move along one axis, you know, like the X axis instead of the X and Y and all over the place. And that was helped by the fact that they're in these aisles so they can move along the aisles and then pop up in another aisle. And so it's very interesting style. And it really worked out. It made that scene feel so different than the other scenes. And you got perspective based on which movies were in focus or which rows were in focus as they changed rows. We already talked about how much work went into this scene with Chuck investigating his house on Michael McKean's part, but it was also hard for the set designers to see their beautiful set be destroyed and then for the visual effects team to make sure that the holes aren't just a hole that shows someone on the other side of the set. (laughs) As always... The showrunners are clearly using color to send certain messages and symbolism to us, and it's something we pay a lot of attention to. In addition to the black and white contrast we saw between Nacho and his father, they were sitting at a green table, and green is the color I've been most intrigued by lately. Early on, it was pretty clear to tell that blues were positive, good, legal, and warm, redder colors were negative, evil, illegal. But green has been appearing more and more in a show, and... At that table there, it's another reason it keeps me a little confused because every time I think I kind of have green nailed down, it's used in a way I can't quite put my finger on. I think, I still think that, I mean, of course it has multiple meanings, but I still think that it's pride is one of the biggest ones. And I even think about that scene with Nacho and his father. That was a scene about pride. He had to swallow this pride and, and potentially ruin his relationship. And he had to tell his father that he needed to do that too. It also had to do with money, which we've talked about as well, right, but I don't yeah. think that was as relevant in that scene. Well, if that's the case, in Pride's case, if since the Gatwood was green, maybe that's related to why Kim was so intent on handling that case because of her pride. I think know? that's a great point that we hadn't thought yeah. about before. And of course, she, unlike all the other characters, let go of her pride <laughs> and is maybe a little happier for it. We'll see. And Jimmy, he also sort of let go of his pride. You know, when he embarrassed himself to set things right. The thing I see or feel most comfortable calling green is part of a cover. A bunch Mm. of times you've seen when something's being hidden or used in a way to cover something else up. Green is associated with it. But I can see probably being connected to that too. A lot of times someone has to forego maybe who they really are for this front that they have to put forward to someone else and that, you know, maybe you get, that's connected to pride, swallowing your pride, you know, putting green in front of it. Chuck had a green over sweater thing that he wore yeah. a lot too. Yeah, he wears that a lot mm-hmm. and he's definitely quite associated with pride and with covering up his illness, mm-hmm. I suppose, yep. as well lately. Because of his pride. That's kind of a symbolic, right? (laughs) When we first see Jimmy, he's in this blue striped polo shirt when he's going to Sandpiper. And then it sort of gets degenerated into him wearing like these red accents for his walking outfit, his Mm tracksuit, which was so well done. The sweatbands and the shoelaces and just all (laughs) these perfect red tints. But then when we get into episode 10, he is in blue when he visits Chuck and Irene and the ladies at the mall. He's even in like a blue and black tracksuit. He got a new tracksuit just so that they could show that he's trying to make amends here and the yoga class. Another color I've started to pick up on and wonder about is pink. Irene was wearing pink. 
and pink and blue when Jimmy first comes to her, blue being like the positive legal thing. But pink, and there's been a few other times when I've noticed it and wondered about it. I think it might be innocence, um, whether it's naivete or just not being mixed up in badness going on. But I think innocence might be what pink represents. A couple times Francesca has been wearing pink. And purple. It could be related to innocence or something that people take advantage of innocent people is gullibility. Maybe, yep, yep. Through the episode, though, she started shifting to yellow, which yellow, I believe, represents transition. Mm. And Wild card. <laughs> <laughs> early on, when we first saw Mike show up in New Mexico and he stepped off the train, his foot stepped onto a yellow line, and we see Jimmy driving around this yellow car. I think yellow clearly represents transition. At the Madrigal lobby, where Mike is waiting for his money-coordinating meeting, <laughs> in the background, there's this huge red painting looming over top of him. And as we mentioned, when he moves from his waiting room to a meeting with Lydia, she's wearing red. Very key telling moment. It's more like blood orange. <laughs> <laughs> when we get to the final episode, again on this yellow being a transition, we see Kim in these yellow pants when she's kind of reevaluating her life and moving away from overwhelming herself at work to taking a time out to watch the movie. She's got yellow pants on. Still a blue sling, though. For sure. Still legal. That She's not necessarily transitioning to evilness she still i think is on the good side but transitioning her life you know trans i don't think the yellow has to be transitioning from good to bad necessarily and then when chuck goes to meet with howard at h at hhm i thought there was a striking difference between the colors of their ties in that chuck's was very pale like almost faded blue with the you know slanted yeah, off kilter stripes but I still thought there was a blue tint to them. More than and whereas Howard else. is in this very blue and purple tie. Is Am I remembering right? He had a blue shirt even. Yeah, right? a blue not, shirt. Not a white a, shirt with a blue tie, but a blue shirt with a was, purple tie. It was a blue shirt with like a blue purple tie. Hmm. It was. He's had far more purple ties. My point being that they're contrasting Howard being more definitively in the right here than Chuck. And I, again, I even think that the pattern on Chuck's tie says a lot. Mm -hmm. Howard yep. had no pattern. He had this slanted, off-kilter, you know, well, Chuck's, pattern. Chuck's was, yes. was slanted and sparse, whereas Howard's was solid and definitive. Yes. Audio elements. In the final episode, watching it a second time, I realized something. Because I try to, you know, absorb all the different elements of filmmaking here. And the key one is the music and the audio and everything. And I realized that there wasn't any in the beginning. For like halfway through the final episode, there was no background music, no inserted symphony or strings or anything. It was just these straight scenes of quietness and dialogue between characters, or sometimes no dialogue, the scene with Jimmy and Kim, you know, at night getting the papers. The first time there's any music in the episode is when Kim's at the Blockbuster, the music that Blockbuster is playing, which still isn't really like show-inserted music. That's Jamiroquai, by the way. Oh yeah, I like Jamiroquai. And that from then on, there's a lot of music in the rest of the episode. It's very crucial, very key, comes up at some very important moments, and it's like synced to the rhythm of what's happening in the scenes as well. For example, a minor example comes from in episode 9 when Hector is making this kind of flicking rhythmic sound, but at first you don't know what it is. It's maybe, you don't know, it's like a clicking or something's happening, a clock or something, but it turns out to be Hector just being Hector, just kind of flicking his lighter, being kind of annoying, you know? <laughs> it is kind of a bullish thing to do. He's doing something that maybe he's entertained by, probably knows it's annoying people, but... 
who's going to say something. Go ahead. Someone, someone tell me to stop this, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it reminded me of a clock ticking, you know, because he was doing it somewhat rhythmically and they were waiting. So it was almost like a clock ticking, which got interrupted by the phone call, which he receives and it smashes the phone on the ground. <laughs> this phone's not my dad. <laughs> Another good example of silence was when Irene won bingo and no one clapped for her. It oh, was yes. really painful. She's like walking really slowly and she's just looking around like, wait, why isn't anyone? Then it kind of dawns on her and it's just like, oof, this is this hurts. <laughs> we also get some great silence when Nacho is leaving his father. Just the sound mm. of the milk pouring and the dogs barking and the crickets and it's just it's sad. It is something that I've paid a lot more attention to specifically, in fact, because of the movie No Country for Old Men. There was no music in that whole movie. Maybe at one point there was like a radio on in the background, but there was no score for that film. And it made me realize how much silence can add gravity to a situation. And also, breaking from silence can also do a lot. They There was another good moment of that. The bingo scene, the same bingo scene where they use silence to make it seem so awkward with Irene winning earlier in that scene. There was no music as Saul is building up. Irene comes in and he's like, okay, let's start again. He gives her the card and there's still no music until he pulls out those balls. And it's like he's still kind of considering it. But the instant he dumps them in, this funky music starts playing right away. And he puts on his show and she's stamping her card. And the music was really well-timed to shift the gears of that mood of that scene. Another good use of sound in that scene with the bingo was when Jimmy realizes he needs to go tend to Irene when she's won, but it's actually terribly sad for her to have won, and she kind of storms off, and he chases after her, and there's an assistant there that he instructs, here, take over. And when that assistant takes the mic and speaks into it, there's this, you know, this feedback blare comes from the mic, and her voice is kind of a little too quiet and uneven, and that contrast kind of reminds us what a showman Jimmy is, how well he was doing on the mic in front of this crowd, you know, being a hype man, if you will, it was a good job using the those audio elements to remind us how well Jimmy is doing on stage here. We mentioned Jamiroquai being in episode 10, but episode 9 and 10 also had a couple other artists in them. For instance, in the mall montage scene in episode 9, there's Boz Skaggs is the <laughs> artist for that song. And in episode 10, when Chuck is playing some jazz music at his house, that's actually Miles Davis. Right on. Music is hugely important to the final several climactic scenes of episode 10. Chuck, first show inserted music we have in, in episode 10 is when Chuck wakes up in the middle of the night. And his whole breakdown is narrated and paced by music. It because there's no dialogue and there's just his great facial acting, but it's accompanied by the music. It's very slow, but a little bit ominous. And as his mania and obsession increases, the tension of the music also builds with it. As soon as he smashes the power meter, it stops. And it goes back to that silence, except for the bat dropping. And it's really ominous, really change of pace, and it's very final. I like that sound of the lantern hissing, too, in the very final scene and of him pushing that thing back and forth to try to knock it off the table. It's this rhythmic sound and the hiss of the lantern behind it. When Kim is looking at her schedule and signing away all her life to Gatwood, or at least considering doing so, she, she pauses 
And in retrospect, that's the moment where she changes her mind about doing this. Music starts right at that moment as she's apparently changing her mind about the direction of her life. And it's this also kind of a slow build that culminates a little bit. It's a shorter moment, so it doesn't have a lot of time to build up. But it's very meaningful and it really tells a story. A final example of the music being set perfectly to what's happening is when Nacho is sitting out in the car deciding that he's going to shoot Hector the second he cocks his gun drums start and it's like there's this little bit of soft music and it becomes really intense and builds from there and i really like how they did that it's several different plot lines all use the same technique and i thought it was great i think that the unsung hero and my favorite audio element was francesca doing gatwood's accent (laughs) (laughs) final thoughts so ash would you say that's your favorite moment of episode 10 it's my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would your favorite moment be then? Uh, well, for episode nine, I'd say it's a toss-up. I think I might have convinced myself through talking about this that it's Nacho coming clean to his father. I think I had a lot to say about that. But I also really liked Kim saving her car, of course. It was great scene in a lot of respects. It even had a slight comical nature, which I like in a scene. And for episode 10, I think my favorite scene, probably when Jimmy was picking up the papers for Kim. Short, short as can be, but I thought it was brilliant. What about you, Aziz? I really like the transition with Jimmy's attitude. When he's sitting outside Chuck's house, he's mad. He's building himself up. He walks up to the house. He slams the mailbox door open, throws his stuff in there, slams the door again, and bangs on the door. He's mad. He's angry. But when Chuck opens the door, he's like, hey, I just wanted to see that you were okay. And then he's his tone, his demeanor changes entirely as soon as he actually sees Chuck. And I really like just what that, the message that communicates. You remind me of something there, Aziz. That moment made me think of something about Jimmy slash Saul. The way he was sitting in the car and suddenly started up and then suddenly stopped it and charged in, I feel like he was being impulsively good. Hmm. He like suddenly realized, no, this is what I have to do. Like he didn't want to face Chuck or swallow his pride or whatever. He was frustrated, upset with the situation, and he was just going to drive off. But he's like, nope, nope, I have to go do this. He kind of like suddenly decided, I have to go do this. And I almost feel he did the same thing with Irene when he's talking with Kim and they're like deciding a movie and he's suddenly like, I realize what I have to do now. Yeah, once he figured I out really a way I really don't want to. Yeah. If he hadn't come up with a, a way to make it happen, he wouldn't you, have done it. But right. once he's like, oh, damn it, I and, got the idea. <laughs> and it's like he's impulsively good. So he suddenly realizes I have to do this good thing. Yeah. And I think it might be a contrast to Saul where I think Saul will impulsively do a bad thing. He'll suddenly decide to help the drug dealer or to trick the old woman or whatever it is. And he won't have any concern for collateral damage or... Right. And maybe after the fact, Jimmy will kick in and realize, oh, crap, I have to fix this now. And he'll impulsively try to fix it. But the next Irene may not get uh, a reprieve. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what were your favorite moments from the two episodes, Sean? I think I agree with you on episode nine that it was that it was Kim saving her car. It was kind of an intense moment. You know, usually her moments aren't action-packed you know (laughs) slightly comical but very slightly comical but yeah very telling of her character and what about for episode 10 i can't quite decide my favorite moment from episode 10 but i do want to make a little prediction i think when kim saves jimmy's rolodex i'm wondering if that's setting her up to take on those clients Mm. she's moving away from this insurance company she wants to do something more positive for the community and she saved those clients which are no good at jim anymore i wonder if that's setting up a future plot line i have a question before we wrap this all up do you guys a think chuck is dead and b want him to be dead go oh, man that's a tough question to answer because 
I was defaulting to thinking he's dead, but just our discussion in this podcast made me start to consider maybe he's not. I still default to thinking he is. I do. I want him to be dead. I don't want to say those words. <laughs> it sounds so wrong, but I think similar to what you were saying is that I want him to be dead for the sake of the show. It's this tragedy that Jimmy needs to face. I think it'll be a defining moment that needs to happen. I'm pretty sure Chuck is dead, but if he's not dead, he's absolutely going to emerge from the flames with a host of dragons. <laughs> Speaking of, after this season, we will be covering Game of Thrones, and fan and media will be putting out episodes a little less often. We will, of course, be back for next season of Better Call Saul, but if you like Game of Thrones, tune in to us at History of Westeros. As for me, I do think that Chuck is dead. Maybe it's wishful thinking because I want the plot line to be dead. So my answer is that I want him to be dead. I think he's dead. But I think that it's very possible slash likely that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould and all the writers didn't know what they wanted to do at that moment, that they left it open for a reason. They could see how people reacted and sit on it for a while. So there you have it. Three out of three podcasters agree Chuck is dead and should be dead. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a bittersweet moment. It was a great season. We had a lot of fun talking about it. A lot of great moments. Sharing it with you guys has been a lot of fun as well. But it's over and we won't get any Better Call Saul again for a while. So that part's no fun. I'll say, Aziz, I don't just think it's a great show. I think it's the best show on TV right now. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll see what happens with other shows we review. You all, if you catch Sean saying that this is the best show, then you'll know that um, maybe he'll have to be challenged on whether Better Call Saul matches up to that one. Speaking of, if you have other shows you want us to cover, let us know. Tweet at the Fandom Media on Twitter or go to our website, fandommedia.reviews. Signing off until the next episode. I'm Chuck McFan. I'm Jimmy McFan. And I'm Irene Fandry. And Felix just won't wash himself. He just won't. <laughs> he just won't. <laughs>